You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. That's great. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in that. I appreciate them so much. They work hard. They come out. They practice. They come early to practice. They um, just do great work. I'm really thankful and appreciative for them. Appreciate Emily's leadership and all their their time and effort as they work on this stuff. That's a great song. You know, that song I think has been sung in some form well over a thousand years in Christian churches. That song goes way, way back. It's a beautiful song, and I'm glad we have the opportunity to sing that together this morning. Hey, Matthew 14 is where we'll be this morning, so turn to Matthew chapter 14. We're a couple weeks into a series that'll take us from Matthew chapter 14 up through Matthew chapter 18, a series called Near and Far, Drawing Close to Jesus. One of our core commitments as a church needs to be, must be, that we draw close to Jesus in in a kind of deep spirituality. We'll look at this real specifically next Sunday as we get into chapter 15, Not, not surface, Not just saying the right thing when it needs to be said and doing the right thing when other people are watching, but but a deep down, intimate heart kind of relationship that draws us close to Jesus Christ. And so we're thinking in those categories as we work through these several chapters, and we'll think about that again today. Matthew 14, I'm going to read verses 22 uh, down to verse 33. This is God's word. Immediately... He made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it's I. Don't be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, now as we look at your word, we want to see Jesus for who he truly is, the Son of God. And we'll need grace and help to see him that way. We'll be tempted to to see Jesus and use Jesus to meet and accomplish our purposes. We'll we'll be tempted to maybe just see Jesus as an interesting and motivating character and someone we could consider following. But what we need to see is that Jesus himself is the holy, sovereign son of God. 
and we need to respond to him and live toward him in light of that overwhelming truth. So I ask for your help, for my heart, for the heart of every person in here, that we would see Jesus and submit to Jesus as Lord. I pray you'd help us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Four things I want to say this morning in response to this passage. If you're a note taker, there will be four. The first one is this. Life has troubles. Life has troubles or storms, if you prefer. Life has troubles. Jesus and his disciples, they're out in the wilderness. We saw last week how they had gone out to get away, to get some time for themselves. Jesus wanted to. It becomes clear in the passage we just read. He wanted some time to pray. After the press of the crowds, demanding his time, demanding his attention, demanding his miraculous healings, and as we saw last week, he travels across the sea of ways, and the crowd just follows around on land, and when he gets there, they're waiting for him, and he spends the day teaching and healing. And when the end of the day comes, we saw last week, he took five loaves of bread and two fishes and fed 5,000 plus people. An amazing miracle. Well, we get to this section, he begins to send the people away, and we see that he sends the disciples away, and he's left there alone. He goes up on the mountain to pray. But they travel out into the sea and have trouble. The wind is against them. They want to go. Uh, normally, they're going to want to follow fairly close to the shore because they're not going all that far, but the wind is against them. And it's pushed them a long ways, it says, a long ways from the land. Now, life has troubles, doesn't it? That's not news to you. Life has troubles and it has storms. And, and our attitude toward those things often is, it's not supposed to be this way. At least not for me. I'm trying to, I'm trying to live and build for myself a life that does not have trouble. Trouble is what I don't want. Some of us are more inclined to this than others. Some of us like conflict. Some of us are, you know, we like to get in the fray. We like to argue. We like to debate. We like conflict. And some of us, like me, are, we're peacemakers and we like it calm and quiet and serene. But life has trouble. We say it's not supposed to be this way. And in a sense, that's true. When this world was created by God, there was no trouble. You remember the very first part of Genesis 1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, this summary statement, and then the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And the idea is that this was before creation. It was covered with water. Water was a symbol of chaos. But then God begins to create. He begins to put the world together, just speaking by the power of his mouth. And he puts together a place that he says over and over, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. There's no trouble. Adam and Eve, the, the first man and woman, they live in this garden and, and they, they never say it's not supposed to be this way because everything around them was exactly the way it was supposed to be. They were the way they were supposed to be. What are people created and put in a perfect environment supposed to be like, exactly like they were? And then, of course, you know the story. They don't trust God. They disobey God. They listen to the serpent. They sin. And the world is plunged into the kind of trouble we see today. And it happens immediately. 
They're kicked out of the garden. And they says, everything that you do in life, your work, childbearing, all these things, your marriage, everything's going to be difficult now. That's the way it is, this side of the fall. Life has trouble. We see it in general kinds of things, just, just the presence of death and disorder. We hear news that there's, there's some kind of seismic event out in the Pacific Ocean, and plates shift, and water moves, and, and then the next thing you know, there's a storm surge that washes ashore and kills thousands of people. It's not supposed to be that way, but those things happen all the time. Hurricanes land, earthquakes, all sorts of things happen in the world. Pandemics strike. It's not supposed to be this way. But we live in a world full of death and disorder now. But it's not just those kind of general things. It's, it's something we would, might call sin, right? We get sinned against. People hurt us. People hurt other people. Friends betray us. Spouses desert us. People lie about us or mischaracterize us or mistreat us. And we all know what those things feel like. It's not supposed to be that way. No, it's not. But that's the world we live in. Of course, the truth is, it's not just the sins that are sinned against us. We know all too well it's the sins we've sinned against God and others. The people we've mistreated the people we've selfishly used, the people we've been unkind to or let down. And then we despair about our own hearts and our own souls. We say it's not supposed to be this way. No, no it's not. But in a world this side of the fall, that's the kind of world we live in. Death and destruction and disorder around us, sins against us, sins coming from us in our own hearts against others, and of course, ultimately against God. Life has storms. It has troubles. We say it's not supposed to be this way, and it's not, but that's the world we live in, and there's nobody for us to blame. It's our fault. Jesus tells his disciples in John 16 in the upper room just a short time before his crucifixion, he says to them, hey, look, in this life, you will have trouble. It's not supposed to be this way, but we, wouldn't, we shouldn't be surprised. Jesus says, you, in this life, you will have trouble, or tribulation, sometimes it's translated. We, in this life, we will have trouble. That's the first point. Life has troubles. I would try to prove it to you, but I don't need to. You know. You know. Here's the second thing. Jesus doesn't shield us from all trouble. Jesus does not shield us from all trouble. Listen, he shields us from a lot of trouble. God in his common grace, the grace he shows to all people, this world is not nearly as bad as it would be if God wasn't restraining evil. You say, there's tons of evil in the world, all kinds of people doing all kinds of terrible things. I know, but it's not nearly as bad as it would be if God wasn't restraining evil. This world would be unlivable if God wasn't restraining evil. Jesus doesn't shield us from all troubles. He shields us from a ton. But not all. And notice in this passage... 
It begins with Jesus making his disciples, compelling them, really, get in the boat and go out into the sea. He knows what's going to happen. He's not as surprised as they are. He knows what's coming. He knows what's ahead of them. He doesn't shield them from this trouble. He doesn't shield us from all trouble. Think think about one of the superstars of the faith, if you will. Think of the Apostle Paul. Turn over to Acts 9 for just a minute. Keep a marker in Matthew 14. We'll go back. Acts 9 is where it's called Saul then. Eventually, of course, he'll be called Paul. He's a great apostle, writes 13 of the New Testament letters, and uh, one of the most formative influences. If there's a hall of fame for the church, Paul has a prime spot, right? But here in Acts 9, he's converted to Christ, and, and as he goes to Damascus, he's still partially blinded, and uh, God goes to a disciple named Ananias, someone who's already a believer there, and he says, hey, go to Saul. He's in this particular place. Go there, lay your hands on him, and uh, you know, basically welcome and accept him into the church. And Ananias says, whoa, 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 you, I've heard about this guy. This guy came here to kill people like us. And look what God says to him in verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. God says, look, he's my chosen guy. I've got big plans for this man. Go see him. But look at the next verse. For I will show him how much he must, what's the next word? Suffer for the sake of my name. And Ananias says, look, this guy came here to punish us. We don't want to suffer under him. And God says to him, no, no, this this is my chosen instrument. He's going to the Gentiles. He's going to the church. He's going to Jews. And I'll I'll show him how much he must suffer. Like, we might think, hey, if I get to to a little higher spiritual level, a higher plane, greater spiritual achievement, greater spiritual accomplishment, then the troubles will settle down. It'll be easier because now I'm a super Christian. No. No. God says, this is my guy. Big plans for him. I'll show him how much he has to suffer. Jesus doesn't shield us from all trouble. He doesn't. Trouble, hard times, can serve and does serve some good purposes. The analogy is imperfect, but but think about children. We don't shield our children, when we're at our best at least as parents, we don't shield our children from all difficulty and trouble. Our kids um, have, uh, uh, last year they were working on um, a, uh, like a, a Dave Ramsey middle school foundations of personal finance class. So they watch this, they get all excited and like, we, we got to find a way to work, we got to find a way to make some money. And so I talked, my son's here today, this is about him, so, uh, but uh, it won't be embarrassing, but the, uh, he was, I talked to my dad up in Saginaw, and I, he's got kind of a, I mean, he's retired now, but kind of a hobby farm, and I said, uh, you know, I'd, uh, if, if you could bring the kids up for several days, give them something to do. I just, I said, they don't need to make a lot of money. You don't have to pay them 20 bucks an hour. They, they'd be content with a very small amount, but just some work, just some work they could do and accomplish. And I said, ideally, like, I don't want you to crush their spirit, but if it's a little crappy work, that would be totally okay. 
right? I'm totally fine with that. I'm totally fine with them coming to work and at some point in the middle going, I don't want to do this anymore because, because I know that's good for them, right? Most of us, if you've had a job like that, and most of us probably have, at the time you're like, this stinks, but later on you're like, that was good for me. I had a job washing dishes down in Virginia when I was going to college at a brand new Ryan Steakhouse that was opening up. That was a miserable job, but I'm glad I worked it for a while, right? Because you keep going for eight hours, a day. I won't go off on that. But anyway, you know what I'm talking about, right? We don't shield our kids from every hard and difficult thing. I could go on, I've got five stories, I've got three stories listed here, I'll, I'll save them. But you know, you get my point, right? Kids have to go through things, we have to go through things. We want our kids to face trouble, we want them to encounter some risk, we want to, to learn wisdom and perseverance in dealing with those things. God is using trouble in our lives too. He's using it more wisely than we are with our, our children. He is with his children. Is that what Jesus is doing here? Learning opportunities for the disciples? Teachable moments so they can learn some important lessons? Well, yes, but it's not mostly tactics for dealing with trouble that we need to learn from this story. Here's the third thing. Troubles clarify where our focus lies. Troubles clarify where our focus lies lies. It says in verse 25, back in Matthew 14, it says, they're out in the storm, beset by wind, it's against them. Verse 25, in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them. In the fourth watch, the fourth watch is the last section of the night right before dawn, about 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So they have been out in the water for a long time. Coming off a long day, carrying and leading a great crowd, passing out food to five to 10,000 people. They've had a long day. They've been fighting against the wind most of the night. In the fourth watch, shortly before morning, Jesus comes to them. That's grace right there. It's grace that Jesus comes to them. But they don't recognize him at first. Apparently, they weren't expecting him. Which on one hand is understandable. They see this figure walking and they say, it's a ghost. Uh, the word is phantasm. We'd get the word phantom from it. It's a ghost. And of course, down to the present day, there, there are all sorts of uh, legends, suspicions, you know, that, that um, the ghosts of drowned sailors, you know, roam the seas or walk in the, all sorts of things like that. They see this image, they think it's a ghost, and they are afraid. That's what fear does, right? Fear overwhelms all of our other impulses and emotions. Whether the fear is rational or irrational, fear overwhelms our, our thinking, it overwhelms our emotions, and takes over our lives. Sometimes it doesn't make a lot of sense. I, when Kelly and I, I was just telling the story the other day, when Kelly and I, our first anniversary, we went to Niagara Falls and to Toronto. And in Toronto, maybe you've been there, there's, I think it's called the CN Tower. It's like this 1,200 foot tall tower that rises up over the whole city. And there's, um, so you take this elevator up and you're way over the city looking down. And uh, as you walk around in this platform, it's all enclosed, but in one section, there's a large area where the floor is glass. And it just looks all the way down to the sidewalk, you know, 1,200 feet or something like that. And so you look at that glass floor 
and you say to yourself, there's people walking all over it, right? There's no way the engineers would build a glass floor 1,200 feet off the sidewalk with glass this thick, right? We, we know that's true. But that first step, you still go, boy, this doesn't, this just doesn't feel right. <laughs> it doesn't feel right to step out quarter mile almost up in the air. It's not a rational fear, but, you know, when you're afraid, it's, it's often not our rational mind calling the shots. Sometimes our fear, uh, fear just takes over. We, we were at some friend's house the other day, and uh, uh, they have a, a fairly large dog, and you can't talk your little kids into not being scared of a big dog they're not familiar with. You can't say, well, he's never bit anybody before. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, no worries then. You, know? you, know, you, you can't do that, right? It's, it's entirely irrational. They, there's a dog that looks them at face level, and they, when the dog gets close, they run. Fear is overwhelming. It blurs and redirects our vision and our focus. All we see when we're afraid is our problems. All we see is our troubles. It overwhelms everything. Sometimes it's rational, sometimes it's not quite so rational, but it's all we see. You know, it's the thing that you wake up in the middle of the night and you can't get off your mind and you lay in bed awake for a long time because it's just there. You can't get it off your mind and it dominates our focus, it dominates our attention. And we don't see the thing that we must see to persevere through our troubles. Peter's experience here makes that even more clear. You know, starting in verse 28, he says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out to you. Tell me to come walk out on the water with you. It's not really clear whether Jesus thinks this is a good thing, like, come on, or if he's like, all right, <laughs> you know, it's, people weren't made to walk on water. It's not really clear what exactly Jesus thinks of this, but he tells Peter, all right, come. And Peter walks out. He walks on water. It's a remarkable thing, but then you see here in the text, when he saw the wind and presumably the effect of the wind, since you can't see wind, the waves blowing around, he began to sink. And what does he do? He cries out for help. In his trouble, which was significant, has just got really significant. Now he's drowning. And he cries out for help. And here we get to the heart of the issue. Here's the fourth thing this morning. Trouble brings us to God himself. Trouble brings us to God himself. Peter says in this last part of verse 30, he says, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. You know, there's another story in Matthew very similar to this. Turn back just a few pages to chapter 8. Look back at Matthew chapter 8. Matthew 8, starting in verse 23. When he got into the boat, that's Jesus, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he, Jesus, was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds in the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even wind and sea obey him? We see almost the same sort of situation. Trouble on the water, crying out for help. Jesus saying, oh, why? You know, He was this little faith. 
Don't be afraid. But there in chapter 8, their question they raise is, who is this guy? Who is this guy? By the time we get to chapter 14, they're beginning to see the answer. The sea was a powerful, uncontrollable force. In the ancient world, the sea was seen as a source of chaos. You can't do anything about the sea. You can't control it. You can't manipulate it. It does what it wants. You were at its mercy. I just read the other day in Acts chapter 27 where Paul is shipwrecked, and they just want to go a little ways along the south coast of Crete. And they got a nice wind from the south. I'm like, that's great. We'll just and they just get out, and a big old wind comes from the north, and it says it blows them. Said for 14 days we didn't see sun, moon, or stars. It blew them across the Mediterranean Sea, entirely at the mercy of the sea. The sea was a source of chaos. It was considered a source of trouble. You know, in the book of Revelation, it says that in the New Jerusalem, it says there will be no sea. And the point there isn't there's no lakefront property. I think we'll still like lakefront property. The point is the sea is chaos and trouble, and that won't be in the New Jerusalem. And so here, Jesus and his disciples are on the sea dealing with this chaos, dealing with this trouble. And look, look what Jesus is able to do. He controls the sea. A number of years ago, we were um, in Hawaii, and uh, we went to uh, the beach one day, and um, these people let us use these little, I think they're called boogie boards, about so big. And we were going to, my brother-in-law and I were going to ride these waves into, my wife's already smiling and laughing, we are going to ride these waves into the shore. Very inexperienced. Very, you know, um, Lake Michigan waves and Hawaii waves are not the same. And uh, these weren't even incredibly big waves, maybe six feet tall or something, but they're big enough. And so we're trying to jump on these boards in time. We're standing about waist-deep water. We're going to jump on these boards and try to ride them into the coast, maybe as far back as Tim is back there. We're just out about so far. And it's, it's really tricky uh, to get that just right. So sometimes you wait a little too long, and the wave just crashes over you and drives you down, and you roll around, the, you know, trying to protect your head. One time, I got right up on the top of the wave, and I was really proud of myself. And then it did one of these and drove me right down on the top of my head on the bottom of the, the sand. Like, you know, the kind of, the kind of break-your-neck move that made me um, get out of the water and try a different thing. But uh, it was... And you just, it was just six feet away. So when we went another day, we went to another place there, a place called Jaws, which is a, apparently a well-known um, surfing location. In fact, while we were there, there was some professional photographers there talk, taking video and talking. And one of the people surfing out there was um, uh, the Soul Surfer movie, the, the woman who, who got her arm. She was out there surfing on this day because it's a special place, 40, 50-foot waves. In fact, later that same month, I read that they'd had, ex like an ESPN or somewhere, they had had exceptional waves, 85 to 90 feet later that same month that we were there. You, you can't control that. With all the technology we have, with all the things that we've accomplished as humanity, nobody controls the sea. Not even kind of. We can't control 85 to 90 foot waves. I couldn't handle six foot waves on a boogie board. It'd throw me wherever it wanted to throw us. Jesus comes out walking on the water. What are we worried about with the water? We don't want to drown. Not an issue for Jesus. He just walks on the top. There's a storm. He climbs in the boat, and the winds and waves go. Pfft. Who can do that? Who can do that? 
You don't know anybody that can kind of do that. If I was in Hawaii with James and he said, watch, I'll turn these six-foot waves into five-foot waves, that would be amazing, right? He can't do that. Nobody can do that. Jesus shuts down the storm altogether. And in fact, if they knew their Old Testaments well, and they probably did, they would know verses like Job chapter 9. Job chapter 9, verse 8. Let me read it to you. I actually read several verses in that section. Job 9, Job is going back and forth with his friends about what's going on. And Job says, uh, truly I know it's so. How can a man be right before God? If one wanted to contend with God, one couldn't answer God one in a thousand times. He's wise and mighty in strength. He removes mountains. He overturns them. He shakes the earth out of its place. He commands the sun. He seals the stars. He stretches out the heavens. He tramples on the waves of the sea. Who walks on the sea? God does. And these disciples see Jesus walking on the sea and shutting down the storm as he climbs into the boat with him. And what does he say? What do they say? Truly, you're the Son of God. Truly, you are the Son of God. I don't think they fully understood all that meant yet. I don't think they fully grasped all the implications of who Jesus was yet. But this man's from God. He has to be. Nobody can do this. Only God. In fact, there's, there's another clue in here. It's harder to see as we read in English, but he, when, when he um, first comes to them and he tells them not to be afraid, in verse 27, he says, take heart, it is I. It is I. And, and the word there is ego eimi. Literally, I am. It, it's the same phrase in Exodus 3 when Moses says to God, who do I tell the Israelites sent me? And God says, tell them I am who I am sent you. Ego eimi in the Greek. It's the same phrase that Jesus repeatedly in John's gospel. You remember the story in John 8. He's going back and forth with the Jewish leaders. And they're going about who's the son of who and who's the father. And they're claiming Abraham and Jesus is claiming Abraham. And finally, in John 8, 57, um, the Jews say to Jesus, he says, you aren't 50 years old yet. And you're telling us you've seen Abraham. And Jesus says to them, truly, truly, before Abraham was, ego eimi, I am. And they go, they know what he's saying. They know what he's implying. I, because the next verse says they bent over and picked up stones to stone him. Now, I don't think the disciples are parsing Jesus' literary style here in the middle of the storm going, hey, ego eimi, I am. But, but the readers of Matthew, from the days when he wrote it until now, we read that and we go, we know what Jesus is saying. We know what's happening here. Jesus, their teacher, their master, our teacher, our master is God. Trouble brings us to God himself. Or at least it should. It should. It's interesting to me that Jesus doesn't confront Peter after he pulls him out of the water. Over and over here, he's told them in this section, you know, when they say it's a ghost, they cry out in fear. Jesus says, take heart. Don't be afraid. When Peter falls in, he tells, you know, 
um, he's afraid. But Jesus doesn't say to him, why were you afraid, Peter? He says instead, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? Why do we doubt? Why do we doubt that the God who created us and has loved us in Christ, who rules the world, who guards us in our troubles, why do we doubt? We know that word doubt can also be translated waver, and we know what it's like to waver. Our faith is up and our faith is down. It's strong and it's weak. We know how we waver between strength of faith and and weakness of faith. Our focus wavers and our attention Our faith is stronger somehow on Sunday morning, isn't it? It's just a little stronger when we sit here together and we sing great songs and we hear from God's word. But then we go somewhere else on Monday morning. We go to work, we go to school, we go on with life and our attention gets focused somewhere else and our faith begins to waver. We begin to doubt. The answer is not, well, what we need to do is muster up more faith. Dig down deep. Look inside yourself. Muster up more faith so so that you don't become afraid, that you don't despair in your troubles. Now, the answer is not inside of us. The answer is not to dig deeper as though more faith is something we muster up from within our own souls. No, the answer is not in us. The answer is in Christ himself. The answer is in who our faith is is focused on. You remember the disciples later, Matthew will come to Jesus and they'll say they want to do this or they want to do that. And Jesus says, if you, had a, if you had as much faith as a mustard seed, Jack talked about this a couple weeks ago, didn't he? If you had as much faith as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be cast up. The answer to our faith issues is not digging up, mustering up more faith in us. It's a greater focus, a greater clarity about who Jesus is and what he's done for us and what he's promised us to be. It's an ongoing problem. This word for doubt here, when Jesus says, why do you doubt, is one more time in the whole New Testament. It's at the end of Matthew 28, verse 17, after Jesus is resurrected from the dead. And listen to what it says. It says in 28, 17, when they saw him, this is the resurrected Jesus, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Some of them saw Jesus standing in front of them and went, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure. And we have great capacity for doubt. But what we need is a renewed and urgent focus on Christ himself. When Jesus is in the boat with them, they're no longer afraid. They're no longer worried. They're no longer focused on the storm because they're with him and they're listening to him and they see him. But that's where we need to be, listening to him, with him, seeing him in his word. The troubles aren't going to go away because Jesus doesn't shield us from all troubles. But as we trust him, those troubles serve a purpose, a redemptive purpose. And we know how we can be sure of that. Because if we were to read 14 more chapters to the end of Matthew, we'd see this same Jesus go to the cross and die in the place of sinners like you and I to demonstrate every bad thing that's happening to you, I'm going to turn around for good. I'm going to turn it around for your eternal good. I doubt, I waver, I'm not sure. Just look at, look at the resurrected Christ. What more do I have to say? What more does God have to show us? 
than his son crucified and risen again on our behalf. Listen, if we're going to draw close to Jesus, if we're going to draw close to Jesus, we have to draw close to Jesus as he really is. Not a tool for us to use, not the means to accomplish some other purpose we have, but to Jesus, the Son of God, who rules our lives and rules this world and is accomplishing his purposes in us. Look, if, if an hour on Sunday morning is the extent of our focus on Jesus, we're going to bob along and struggle in our troubles all week. It just isn't enough. We need this. We need this encouragement. We need this kind of rejuvenation and support, but, but one hour a week isn't going to do it. One hour a week of, of focus and then going on another, you know, the whole rest of the week focused on everything else that simply won't work. We need, we need a regular, intentional focus on Christ if we're going to draw close to him. Let me pray. Father, I pray um, that you would help us. We are easily distracted. Our focus is easily drawn away. We're caught up in lots of things, and we need your help. But we know the troubles that we often face are real, and we know you care about them and that you're with us through them. But I pray that we would not become so preoccupied with the challenges we deal with and the struggles we have that we lose sight of the fact that you are with your people unfailingly through them, accomplishing good even through the troubles that feel so bad. So I pray that we would be relentlessly focused on you, intentionally focused on you, coming to you in your word, coming to you in prayer, that, that, that the troubles of our life would all be framed by and caught up in in the picture of what you're doing in us and through us in this world and what you've promised us in eternity. Lord, I pray you would help us. There are many people here dealing with many troubles. Some of them small nuisance troubles, some of them big life-altering troubles. And We know you love us and care for us in all of them. I pray much grace and much help thank you that you love us. I thank you that you care for us. I thank, that, thank you that you don't send us out in the storm and leave us alone, but that you come to us graciously, kindly, faithfully. I pray that we'd look to you this week and encourage each other to do the same. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to thank you for coming this morning. Uh, it's been good to be here with you. Uh, let me encourage you to take some time to, to fellowship with one another. And let me Read you just a couple verses of benediction as we go out. Hebrews chapter 13. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, so that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, God bless you. Have a great week.